the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. More sanctions have been slapped on entities connected to Russia since its invasion of Ukraine than have been applied to entities worldwide in the previous decade. That's created real complexity and real risk for the shipping industry. And frankly, if you are still of the opinion that sanctions compliance is not a problem, then I can only assume that you haven't been reading Lloyd's List this week. On Monday, we revealed that the US government had seized a cargo of Iranian oil from a Russian-flagged tanker being held in Greek waters and chartered to a Greek owner to transport the oil back to the US. Then, on Tuesday, it was Croatia's turn to consult the lawyers when a Panamanian-flagged tanker, the ARC-1, turned up with a cargo purporting to be of Malaysian blend, but had a trading history of dark STS transfers that rather suggested it might be more Iranian blend. Then, following several months of pretty ambiguous signals from Washington regarding its enforcement strategy for sanctions against illicitly traded Iranian oil, the US Treasury Department finally decided to issue a comprehensive crackdown against a Moscow-backed Iranian oil smuggling network, effortlessly combining a multinational full house of sanctions hotspots for shipping in one detailed investigation into subterfuge skullduggery. Now, I mention all of this because our topic for this week's podcast is, once again, risk and compliance in shipping. And while I am aware that we have covered this topic only a few weeks ago, it's important to note that this is a pretty fast-paced topic. I chaired a really fascinating discussion this week for Lloyd's List in our risk and compliance webinar. So I have at my disposal some exclusive expertise that I wanted to share with you. I'm going to cherry pick a few highlights from the webinar for you here, but I want to urge you all to listen to the whole webinar, which is available on LloydsList.com on demand for free. You just have to register your details via the banner on the homepage and follow the instructions from there. We know that the landscape of sanctions and political risk has made the business of shipping significantly more complex. But it's also the case that not everybody is set up to deal with that complexity. So I'm going to start with Kari Steinbauer, who is a partner at Winston & Strawn and practices in the area of economic sanctions, export controls and anti-money laundering. Given her career navigating the complex and sometimes conflicting web of government regulation, I asked her what the regulator's view of shipping was and how she views its growing complexity. What we're seeing is this um, expectation that the vessel owners and the charter parties and the insurers have the same capacity, the same insight that the U.S. government would have Uh, with respect to access to satellites and the ability to track uh, uh, fraudulent documents um, in in order to understand the true origins of the cargo. So this applies mostly in the oil and gas context, but equally could apply in in the cargo setting as well with with respect to this, first of all, uh, global perspective on or expectation that uh, every party to a trans to a shipping transaction would have the same amount of information, would be responsible for the same amount of information, and also that uh, the parties are all using satellite imagery to understand, even if there's a ship to ship, where the origin of of the cargo ultimately um, comes from. And, and it's not sufficient. We've learned through through uh, many examples now to rely on uh, certificates of origin and bills of lading. Uh, for accurate representations. So it's it's complicated. It's getting more challenging. 
But I think that's just because the parties that are engaged in the illicit activity have become um, more sophisticated in developing the shipping routes and in developing third-party payers and all of these layers of subterfuge uh, that are now common knowledge amongst those types of groups and are going to be picked up by the next target of, of sanctions. So it's an evolution of, of what the Treasury Department would call the evasion and avoidance techniques. Louis Vargas is a financial crime and sanctions specialist at Danske Bank, and he has a similarly sceptical view of the shipping industry's current level of due diligence and scrutiny when it comes to uncovering subterfuge activity. We can't fool ourselves either. I mean, the Russians are very adept at, at uh, hiding ownership structures. Uh, they're adept at, you know, hiding ultimate beneficial owners. So this is now just a carryover into their, you know, I would say super deceptive ways. Um, but, you know, maritime, the maritime industry has always been kind of, um, in my opinion, um, you know, not seen for the real risk it is across financial crime you know, forget about sanctions for the moment. But, you know, when you talk about, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, people thought it was just okay to screen a vessel name. Now they're finally come to the realization you have to screen something that's more static, like an IMO number or an MS, um, MMSI number. So um, I think we're still progressing in our knowledge uh, on what's appropriate to screen and how to screen it. Um, I think now that technology and data is re- more readily available, now it's easier for us to uh, screen vessels and and their movements, um, as Carrie mentioned, with satellite imagery. But again, I think a lot of industry is still behind the eight ball, right? They haven't invested in these technologies. They still think screening is the name of the game, right? Because from, I guess, a, a financial perspective, they say, okay, let's just go by letter of the law, which is we got to screen whatever they want us to do. But we have to think forward we have to be forward thinking and thinking about the risks that's that that's present that that can be present um so free tools that are online um could just get you so far um even paid tools um, only get you so far i think using them in conjunction you can build a full picture of the risk um so yeah i just wanted to quickly mention that it's it's a problem across the industries it's a problem across uh the different financial crime uh pillars and um, it's still something that, you know, everyone is still tra- trying to grapple with because we also, you know, we have to be honest, not all of us are shipping experts, right? We're risk experts, we're law experts, but when it comes to shipping, um, there's a lot of disconnect uh, between the two. Um, and, you know, take it as a call right now, call, like we have to get better at talking to each other and, and learning from each other because then it'll be easier for all of us to address the risk more appropriately. It's interesting you say that, Louis, because I think it's fair to say that the banks generally, and I know Danske Bank is one of them, have invested significantly since, say, mid-2000. And that was not any form of altruism on their part. That was directly as a response of them getting stung by some serious fines, BNP Paribas being the the record multi-billion dollar uh, fine from the U.S. Treasury when they got caught um, effectively breaking sanctions and not doing due diligence. So I think the banks have certainly learned their lessons. I don't necessarily see that same urgency from the shipping community, but you'll know better than I do. I mean, how does you know the bank's preparedness and, and technological investment compare to 
even the mid-tier uh, shipping companies these days? I mean, that's a great question. I think banks are still grappling with these issues, right? Um, they're in, you know, most banks are kind of in some sort of remediation stage. Uh, maritime, I think risk is still on the back burner, uh, unfortunately. Um, so you see a lack of investment. You're right, Danske Bank has taken a step to invest in technology to help us with this risk. But again, it's still driving it forward, right? Getting the first line and the business units to also buy into these additional controls that are necessary. Um, and that's why I was talking about before about letter of the law, right? We can't just be stuck in what we feel are the, the baseline uh, parameters that we need to operate in. Um, but again, you know, there's so much work going around, so much remediation, it's hard to really focus on that. Um, and talking about the shipping industries, I, I think it's the same. They're just overwhelmed with, you know, because they, you know, they have large fleets. They're going to, you know, they're going to say, well, now I need a full army of people to monitor this. And it's like, maybe you don't need to hire that many people. You could get creative. But yeah, I mean, just because a shipping company is based out of Norway, for per se, right? Norway, generally speaking, is low risk. But those vessels travel around the world. That's where the risk lies. It's not where you're domiciled. It's where you're doing business. And I think a lot of people forget that. Louis's view there that sanctions due diligence is more than simply checking against lists is, of course, pretty well understood by most. But even governments struggle when it comes to unraveling the complexities of offshore brass plate companies and beneficial ownership structures. I brought in our resident expert on such matters, Sebastian Villian, head of risk and compliance at Louis List Intelligence, for his view on how that has evolved. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. It's, it's not sufficient to have an Excel list uh, ready at hand and just look at the SDN lists that are published by the by the sanction authorities. And the sanction authorities have been very clear on that as well. Uh, they might designate a particular company or, or, or entity, but the onus is again back on the companies to make sure that they understand which counterparties within these groups they interact with. Um, and as Louis mentioned, I mean, the maritime industry has been opaque by nature. There's nothing you in there. Uh, but what is interesting, particularly with the Russia situation, is that, of course, Russian companies and counterparts have been very legitimate and close trading partners uh, for, for a number of years. It's just with the recent changes because of the geopolitical situation and the invasion into Ukraine that we've seen that shift. So, um, as Louis mentioned, with Norwegian companies, a lot of the companies that we're screening there as well, you might then be interacting with an ultimate owner who might be a dual national Norwegian Russian or have strong operations in Russia, a largely Russian owned fleet, which is now being being changed. And that's a complexity that is reality that we need to work with. Um, so it is complex, but it's also not just doom and gloom. I think everyone who's joined the webinar here today in this session, of course, are here because they want to stay in compliant. They want to try and improve their processes. So. I think it's important to to think about what we need to do and how we best achieve that. Uh, so even with these sort of grey sanctions and 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 self-sanctioning that we we're seeing, there are ways of making that easier. So uh, what we're hearing from compl compliance managers across the industry, but what Louis said as well, is that in the end you need to be able to evidence the checks that you've done. All that, of course, begs the question. How deep should people be going in terms of expunging their exposure to Russian risk right now? Carrie Steinbauer again. 
so the again the the compliance baseline has been set really with respect to the Iranian sanctions sanctions and has evolved to include Venezuelan and now Russian. So um, the expectations from the U.S. government have increased because the government's understanding of the shipping space and of the layered ownership and of the deception is, has increased. Um, I what I'm actually seeing is that the ship the shipping sector itself isn't rising as quickly as the level of sophistication of the U.S. government, at least the investigators with whom our clients are receiving inquiries or from whom uh, our clients are receiving inquiries. So typically what, what will happen is um, either we'll, a client will get a call from the State Department or from law enforcement in, about a particular voyage or about a, a specific vessel. And typically what the question involves is, you know, what kind of due diligence have you done and are you aware that you're carrying prohibited cargo? Um, and so the, the response we get often from clients is, well, you know, we've, uh, you know as we've discussed already, we've, we've checked uh, the SDN list, we have uh, certificates of origin, we have bills of lading, everything complies, our financial institution says it's permissible. But uh, that, that's, not, that's not sufficient anymore. Um, the other thing that we hear often from the ship owners is that, or even from other parties to the transactions, like some of the brokers, is that they, they're not in a position to really evolve and develop the compliance questionnaires, because if they do, the parties to the transaction will just go someplace else and they'll cut out the, the super compliant parties. Uh, but with respect to the Russian sanctions in particular, the challenge is something that you foreshadowed in your introductory comments, which is while we have a coalition-style uh, rollout of sanctions, there's deviations in each of the programs. So in the United States, uh, very clearly, we have a 50% rule. Uh, if, uh, if you've done your due diligence on the beneficial ownership structure and a uh, party is 49%, uh, owner, then the entity is not prohibited because 49% is not 50%. In the United Kingdom and the EU, that's not quite the case. There's the 50% rule, but then there's this um, language that's a little bit more amorphous with respect to whether even if the 50% rule isn't met, there's still control. And so most of the questions we're fielding are with respect not to the U.S., expectations on beneficial ownership, but with respect to the UK and the EU rules with respect to whether the underlying entity is still sanctioned because uh, there's control through board positions or de facto control through other criteria management, uh, other indicia that would, would actually trigger this, this shadow status. And what we're seeing is that that's evolving into a shadow or cottage industry of due diligence providers uh, looking at documentation and actually putting together memoranda that can be provided to counterparties, to financial institutions with respect to whether an entity is or is not actually prohibited. So, so that's been the, the biggest evolution that we've, we've seen evolve under the Russian sanctions. Understanding the evolving sanctions regime is, of course, one part of being able to manage risk. But one of the issues that got raised several times this week by all of the experts on the webinar was the increasing frequency of full certification being used to pass off sanctioned oil as legitimate. It was something I picked up on with Kari. Yes, it's, I mean, without going into specific cases, uh, we're sure. seeing it happen all the time. So, it, it, and I think, you know, there's, there's enough of a trend there that it's safe to say if something 
says it's Omani origin, um, there would be an expectation, at least from U.S. law enforcement, uh, based off of, of you know prior enforcement actions, to do enhanced due diligence with with anything that's marked Omani or Iraqi or you know, if you're looking at the Caribs and you're worried about Venezuelan origin, then you'd look at certificates of origin coming out of jurisdictions like like Trinidad, uh, any, anywhere around there, because uh, what we're seeing is is that oftentimes the, the documents are just are, are falsified. They come with the official stamps of the government. They say that they're, you know, Omani origin. But but in fact, if you do uh, what Louis suggested and you run the tests or you go back and you look at the uh, satellite imagery for the ship to ships and you look at how high the vessel is carrying or is, is uh, loaded on the water when it's calling on, you know, an Omani port versus uh, any other place. It, oftentimes you can piece together the information and realize that uh, physically it's impossible for the cargo to be Omani when um, if you trace the chain, you can see that the, the cargo uh, was transferred via ship to ship one or two times and originates in you know a place like Carg Island or something along those lines, and and that's the type of information that's available to law enforcement. Uh, there's groups like there's uh, groups like United Against a Nuclear Iran that have websites specifically dedicated to tracking these these types of trans transfers and transactions. You know there's articles that Lloyd's is is covering with respect to these types of transactions. So there's all this information out there. And I think it's it's naive now to say that uh, you you can rely solely on a certificates of origin where there are things like ships to ships or uh, other other triggers that would raise red flags. Now, as regular listeners will know, Lloyd's List Markets editor Michelle Vizi Bachman is an old hand at tracing subterfuge shipping and unraveling false documentation against the evidence. So, I'm going to give the last word to her for this week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, shipping is very good at finding regulatory grey areas and regulatory gaps, So, in, in, as well as false bill, bills of lading. We've seen fake flags, fake P&I companies, uh, protection and indemnity insurance companies, um, seen fake companies, companies based out of building blocks in, in, you know, in the coast of India. And that has really... Um, undermined confidence in shipping's ability to be able to to properly um, um, ensure they're compliant with a lot of the sanctions. In the example I gave earlier about the um, ship-to-ship transfers taking place off off Greece, of course, none of these were technically um, in breach of sanctions, except if that cargo perhaps goes to the US, where Russian oil cargoes are banned, if it goes to to Europe, that cargo is not sanctioned. If it goes to the UK, maybe it is if that cargo is Russian owned or if the ship is Russian owned or chartered. And if it heads off to India and China, that it's not subject to sanctions. Um, And also your point um, that that Kari made about the uh, United Nuclear Against Iran non-government organization, there are now also uh, copycat organizations that are now tracking Russian cargoes. And one of them is the, the Russian tanker tanking group, which is uh, set up with rep- uh, represent- representatives of the Ukraine government. Now, that is tracking all the activity that's going to the to Europe and, and elsewhere. And interestingly enough, 
they are reporting the names of owners and ships involved to the Ukraine prosecutor for possible legal remedy later on. Now, that may just be something they're saying to, to sort of keep the industry on its toes, but it certainly has spooked um, some of the, the big Greek owners that are engaged in the trade at the moment. And there we shall leave it for another week. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is just a small snippet of the hour-long discussion I had that covers these topics and more in a great deal of depth. So I would urge you all to go to loyslist.com and give it a listen online. As ever, get in touch with feedback, story ideas, scoops and questions. You can find me on at loyslisted on Twitter or email me direct at richard.mead at informer.com. For now, though, thank you for listening and have a good week. <laughs>